Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to CBS News Roundup ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, an arrest in that leak of classified Pentagon documents. This was a deliberate criminal act. Another Republican-led state joins dozens in enacting near-total bans on abortion. We have the opportunity to save lives. We are creating a death sentence. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, online outrage over a company's quest to increase diversity via computer, not real people. They did not use human models. They used AI-generated models. I'm Allison Keyes in the Washington Bureau. The Air National Guardsmen arrested Thursday over those leaked classified Pentagon documents involving the Ukraine war, Jack Texera, appeared in court Friday. The Department of Defense first discovered some of its most top secrets posted on social media a week ago, but the leak actually began last fall. CBS's Catherine Herridge joins us with more. Well, he faces two very serious counts. Uh, These are federal statutes, and they allege that there was the unlawful removal, retention, and then transmission of classified information. Allison, in this case, it would be taking these highly classified documents, photographing them, and then posting them to this online gaming platform. Catherine, how did they find this suspect, and what do we know about him? Well, based on the criminal complaint, the FBI went to users in this gaming platform chat room and they were able to identify the the user who was posting the documents. And then it was very simple law enforcement work. They went to Discord and asked for the billing records. And in the billing records, they were for Jack Teixeira, who is the 21-year-old Air National Guardsman. The people I've been talking to on the street are basically like, how did he have access to this stuff? Is it just lying around? Well, he, based on our reporting, he had some kind of tech job in an intelligence wing with the Air National Guard. So think of it like an administrator. They're maintaining the systems, so they have access to the systems, and in this case, the highly classified information that was flowing through them. What's the big question, especially for former intelligence and defense officials, is why these tripwires in the system didn't light up when there was this unusual activity. CBS's Katherine Herridge. Florida this week became the latest state to create a near-total abortion ban. It will only take effect if the state's current 15-week ban is upheld in an ongoing legal challenge that is before the state Supreme Court. It is controlled by conservatives. This means abortion access in the South is essentially limited to two states, North and South Carolina. CBS's Nancy Cordes. Amid protests in Tallahassee, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a six-week abortion ban late Thursday night. It's called the Heartbeat Protection Act. We have the opportunity 
to save lives. We are creating a death sentence for women. Florida now joins the ranks of a dozen Republican-led states that have enacted near-total bans on abortion in the 10 months since the Supreme Court undid nearly 50 years of federal protections. April is National Distracted Driving Awareness Month. This 2019 video highlights the danger of texting behind the wheel. Police say the driver was on the phone when they drifted into a power pole. Luckily, the driver only had minor injuries, but that's not often the case. Uh, sit up in the air, landed on my head. Nine years ago, Jim Jones was hit by a distracted driver while walking across the street. He had brain damage, severe injuries, and is still dealing with the long-term effects. Uh, walking around with a cane, I'm not used to that. That was something I had to get used to. Um, but the brain injuries are something because it's short-term memory. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says more than 3,500 people were killed in distracted driving crashes in 2021, a 12% increase from 2020. That's an average of nine people a day. Too many people are making it a priority to respond to a work email or send a text message or program GPS while they're driving. Doug Shoup with AAA is encouraging people to use the driving focus feature on their phone. It can be accessed through settings on an iPhone. These driving focus features will connect to a vehicle's Bluetooth and also restrict incoming calls and texts while the vehicle is in motion. Jim Jones's family was told he wouldn't survive, but he was determined to recover to walk his daughter down the aisle four months after his accident. What is your message to drivers now? I wish people would just reflect on what happens to the families of the victim and the victim themselves, of course. And he hopes his story prevents someone else from becoming a victim. Donya Backus, CBS News, Los Angeles. We now know whether Prince Harry is going to next month's coronation of King Charles. The statement read, the Duke of Sussex will attend the coronation service at Westminster Abbey on May 6. The Duchess of Sussex will remain in California with Prince Archie and Princess Lilibet. A compromise, it seems, for the new king, says Sunday Times royal editor Roya Nika. I think Harry coming on his own was um, the hope from many inside uh, the palace because the focus will be much more on the king and the queen on coronation day as it should be rather than on what sideshow might be going on with Harry and Meghan in attendance. Prince Harry hasn't been in the UK much since he and Meghan stepped back as working royals in 2020. He attended Prince Philip's funeral and the couple returned when Queen Elizabeth died. Prince Harry was also here last month to attend a high court hearing in his case against the publishers of a British tabloid newspaper. But while promoting his best-selling bombshell memoir, Spare, he told 60 Minutes' Anderson Cooper in January he wanted to sit down with members of his family to discuss the issues he's been so open about privately. There needs to be a constructive conversation, one that can happen in private, that doesn't get late. It's not clear if that conversation happened, nor do we know how or why the decision was made he would attend the coronation alongside 2,000 other guests, including the First Lady, and not his wife and children. Whatever the reason, this will be the first time Prince Harry will be seen in public with King Charles, the Queen Consort Camilla, and Prince William since writing so unsparingly about them in his book, including of the physical fight with his brother and how both of them begged their father not to marry Camilla. As for Meghan, the coronation happens to fall on the fourth birthday of Prince Archie. But her absence from the king's crowning moment 
will only add fuel to the speculation that the royal rift is deeper than ever. NPS Dive, CBS News, London. It seems there's a right and a wrong way to flush your toilet. Things that make you go ew. A Utah microbiologist says you ought to put the toilet top down before you flush. Otherwise, you're spewing all manner of bacteria into your bathroom. Tim Call did an experiment showing that the level of icky stuff on surfaces in your restroom more than double when you flush with the lid up. Of course, the whole thing went viral on TikTok, where some commented, who doesn't close the lid? A study a few years back found that people who left the lid up had particles of you-know-what land on their toothbrushes. Coming up, CBS reports sex abuse in the nation's schools. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. The NCAA women's basketball had an incredibly successful season. And now your favorite players from the 2023 to 2024 NCAA season will be in the WNBA. To all our veteran fans, welcome back. And to all the new fans joining, welcome to the W. This season, watch as proven legends Brianna Stewart, Asia Wilson, and Sabrina Ionescu continue their dominance, while rookies Caitlin Clark, Cameron Brink, and Angel Reese prove themselves on a WNBA court. The WNBA is redefining basketball on their own terms this season, keeping the game and players front and center while celebrating the intersection of identities and perspectives that align with fans. Welcome to the W. You're in for some world-class basketball. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Funerals are being held Friday and over the weekend for some of the five people killed in that mass shooting at a Louisville bank. Earlier this week, police released 911 calls from Monday's attack. We want to warn you, they're tough to hear. CBS's Roxana Saberi with more. Oh my God, there's an active shooter there. The first call came from a woman who watched the scene unfold on a video conference meeting. And how do you know you have an active shooter on the site? I just watched it. How do you watch it? You watch it on meetings. Another woman calling from inside a closet identified the gunman to the dispatcher. How do you know the person? He worked with us. As more calls poured in, the shooter's mother called, saying he might be headed to the bank with a gun. I don't even own guns. I don't know where he would have gotten a gun. But six days earlier, he had bought an AR-15-style rifle, and it was already too late. It's dangerous there. They've had calls from other people, so he's already there? Yes, at Old National Bank on East Main Street. This person murdered my friend. But still, I can't imagine how his parents must be feeling right now. Thomas Elliott was a close friend of Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir. I've been governor during this pandemic. I've been governor during tornadoes and floods and negative 45 degree wind chills and, and everything else. And we've lost a lot of people during those, but calling your friend's wife, who is also your friend, to tell her that her husband is gone is um, amongst the hardest things I've ever done. At a vigil Wednesday night, community members honored the five people killed. Amazing grace. Along with the eight injured. One of those is Dana Mitchell, who was shot in the back. I'm just thankful to still have her today. Mitchell called her son, Ross Minreth, from the hospital Monday. What's the toughest part of it for you? Thinking back and just like, you know, like I got that call from her, but... I could have got a call from the CEO of the bank, you know. 
but I got a call from her. Louisville Mayor Craig Greenberg told me while the 911 calls are difficult to listen to, he wanted them released so people could hear what happened here at the bank on Monday and how the police responded. Roxana Saberi, CBS News, Louisville, Kentucky. In Tennessee, two black Democratic lawmakers have now been reinstated at the State House. They were ousted by the Republican majority for leading a protest over gun reform in a state where six died in a mass school shooting a couple of weeks ago. No peace. No Justin, no peace. This is what democracy looks like. Justin Jones and Justin Pearson. Because this is the democracy that changes the status quo. Two-thirds of the Tennessee Three marching supporters through Memphis to the intersection of reappointment and redemption. We need to use the democratic process of reappointment in order to ensure that we send a clear message that we care about the preservation of democracy. What you all see right now is a vote. The Shelby County Commission's vote whether to appoint Pearson as his former district's interim state rep. Unanimously, they said yes. Two weeks ago, this disruptive gun control protest on the House floor enraged Republicans. They expelled both Pearson and Jones, a tactic that boomeranged. Ever been on a roller coaster quite like this one? Definitely not. Justin Jones. Nashville's Metro Council gave Jones back his seat on Monday. An hour later, he took a victory lap on the House floor. Are you being treated any differently by the Republicans who wanted you gone? Hmm. I mean, many of them, you know, some, some will say hi, some, some still won't talk to us. I hope that the culture here changes. I hope that democracy thrives, and I hope that we take action um, to move this state forward. And this development's bound to upset those Republican lawmakers. Governor Bill Lee, another Republican, has signed an executive order to expand background checks for gun buyers. And he's also urging legislation to take guns away from dangerous people. For Democrats here, it's hard-fought progress. Mark Strassman, CBS News, Memphis. CBS Reports has a new documentary out called Pledge of Silence, Sex Abuse and Cover-Up in America Schools. CBS's Meg Oliver joins us to discuss this widespread disturbing problem affecting millions of young people. We focused on Redlands, California, but Redlands could be any town USA. There are more than 5 million children who have been sexually abused at the hands of a school employee. The statistic is that 12% of all American public school students will be sexually abused before they graduate high school. And what's even more alarming is that only 6% of cases are reported, 94% of them stay silent. And one of the things that was terrifying was the fact that other school employees seemed to know that this was happening and no one reported it. Right. And that's where it comes down to the accountability and also it's called passing the trash. When school districts are alerted or they hear of allegations of teacher sexual abuse, they often try to make them go away quietly without any record. It's estimated that one teacher can abuse as many as 73 students and on average pass among three different districts before they're stopped. For some districts, it's easier to quietly let their contract expire or write a recommendation to another district than report them and risk the reputation of the school district. It's a crime not to report even a suspicion of sexual abuse, but across the country, those laws, they're rarely followed. So you can see how this cycle of abuse repeats. 
Another thing that struck me about the documentary is that is the way that that children themselves, teenagers, are being blamed for this. Mm-hmm. And that was probably one of the most shocking things that our expert took a look. At. You know, that was one of the most shocking things to hear that the students were at fault. Um, it, it, it's you know, we interviewed an expert who said there's a there's a hierarchy in schools. There's the teacher and there's the student. And you listen to the the teacher. It's the teacher's job to set the boundaries. And we were looking for accountability at every angle. We went to every government agency you could possibly imagine, city, county, state, all the way up the chain to the federal government. And when we got there and interviewed them, I asked, how can you make sure your child's school is safe? And the Federal Department of Education told me, quote, you can be sure it's not safe. The documentary is streaming on Paramount+. Plus. A quest for possible ETs by a spacecraft heading for Jupiter. The so-called JUICE spacecraft has begun its long trip. The launch from French Guiana. JUICE is the acronym for Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. And while the European Space Agency spacecraft will explore Jupiter from above, the real prize is three of its moons. Scientists say Europa, Callisto, and Ganymede are covered with ice. CBS's Peter King says that could mean signs of life. Coming up, is COVID really over? That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is facing more questions just after a report that he failed to disclose sale of a home to GOP donor Harlan Crow. CBS's Jan Crawford. Conservative Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is under scrutiny for the second time this month after ProPublica reported on undisclosed financial ties to Republican mega donor Harlan Crow. CBS News can confirm ProPublica's reporting that Crow's company purchased properties belonging to Thomas and members of his family in his hometown of Savannah, Georgia. The undisclosed 2014 deal included the purchase of a home and two vacant lots for more than $130,000. That made Crow the owner of the home Thomas's mother lived in that later underwent tens of thousands of dollars worth of renovations. But Thomas didn't report the sale, despite a federal disclosure law partly designed to help avoid conflicts of interest. That law indicates justices should report most real estate deals over $1,000. The experts told us it appears that Thomas very clearly violated the law. Joshua Kaplan is one of the reporters who wrote the story. I think one of the root issues here is that the Supreme Court has very, very little transparency and very, very little oversight compared to essentially every other part of the federal government. And the justices have been, you know, essentially almost entirely left to police themselves. Crow said in a statement that he bought it to one day create a public museum at the Thomas home. This revelation comes on the heels of a report last week. Thomas accepted luxury vacations over the past two decades, paid for by Crow. In a statement following that report, Thomas said he was advised that this sort of personal hospitality from close personal friends who did not have business before the court was not reportable. Senate Democrats, in support of more transparency from the court, like Rhode Island's Sheldon Whitehouse, are calling on Chief Justice John Roberts to launch an ethics investigation and refer Thomas to the Attorney General for investigation. 
Minneapolis is paying nearly $9 million to settle two lawsuits alleging previous violent arrest by the former officer who killed George Floyd. There are claims his actions were part of a pattern. Zoya Code was arrested in Minneapolis in June of 2017, accused of attacking her mother. Newly released video shows Derek Chauvin, the same officer convicted for the murder of George Floyd, dragging and carrying her while she's handcuffed, her arms outstretched behind her back. Ow! That's how you gonna slam me on the ground? Chauvin slams code face first on the ground and kneels on her neck for four minutes and 42 seconds. The same move he used three years later for eight minutes and 46 seconds with George Floyd. They were not the only ones. Another plaintiff was John Pope Jr. In 2017, he was 14 years old. You're under arrest, so stand up. I'm not under arrest. When Chauvin and other officers went into his bedroom, Pope pleaded with officers, alleging his mother was drunk when she called law enforcement. You can't touch me in my own house. Get up now. Former officer Chauvin and Alexander Walls violently wrestled Pope to the ground. Chauvin almost immediately grabbed Pope by the neck and struck him with his flashlight. You hurting me! Then a chokehold and a knee to the neck, not for four or eight, but for 15 minutes. I did fear for my life and my safety throughout the encounter. Pope says the experience is still with him, even after the $7.5 million settlement. Now he's in college studying criminal justice in the hopes that he can bring about change. The system has a major flaw in it that needs work to be done. And it's not going to get done just talking about it. It's going to get done with solutions. Two years after the killing of George Floyd in 2022, a report by the state's Department of Human Rights concluded that the Minneapolis Police Department creates a culture that results in unnecessary escalation and or excessive force during encounters. We are dealing with the ugly consequences stemming from a systemic failure within the Minneapolis Police Department. Legal analyst Joe Tamburino says these lawsuits show how those acknowledgments came far too late. If the Minneapolis Police Department would have paid attention to excessive use of force by officers like Mr. Chauvin back in 2017 and years before that, then Mr. Floyd likely would not have been murdered. Lilia Luciano, CBS News, New York. This week, President Biden signed a bill ending the COVID-19 national emergency Cases are down, but the virus is far from over. Now COVID-sniffing dogs are helping to fight it. It's 9 a.m. and Scarlett, a two-year-old yellow Labrador, is already working her little tail off. Good girl. This is her boss, Liz Johnston. That's a good girl. Scarlett and her canine co-worker Rizzo are part of a growing number of dogs who can detect COVID in humans simply by sniffing their socks. We perspirate and sweat through our socks with a very hot sample, so it has a lot of odor on it. Hired by the California Department of Public Health, they've been deployed to classrooms and nursing homes all over the Bay Area, essentially serving as walking COVID tests. No need for swabs or even a laboratory. Instead, these labs come to you. Why use dogs? They're um, environmentally friendly. 
so there's not a lot of trash from that. And why wouldn't you like her running around you instead of someone taking something up your nose? Show me. Dog's sense of smell is estimated to be 10,000 to 100,000 times better than that of humans. Over the years, they've been used to sniff out everything from bombs to illegal drugs and even cancer. They could sniff out a half a teaspoon of an odor in an Olympic-sized swimming pool without a problem. They've been trained with a wheel that has a canister attached to the end of each spoke. One of them is stuffed with a used sock that belonged to a person who recently tested positive for COVID. The moment Scarlett and Rizzo think they've detected a positive case, they sit down. Is that it? Right here is where the COVID canister is. I'm going to move it a little bit to my left, and let's see if she can find it. That's amazing. She didn't even hesitate. How accurate are they? They're very accurate. Um, on their double blind studies, they were over 95%. Okay. Carol Edwards is the executive director of Early Alert Canines. The company has been training Scarlett and Rizzo almost every day to keep them up to date on all the latest strains. She says not only are they accurate, they can tell if someone has COVID even before it shows up in other tests. But perhaps their biggest advantage is speed. You literally can do 300 people in 30 minutes with a dog. You cannot do that with a 15-minute Binex test. After a rough day at work, Scarlett heads home. Let's go. Happy to use her nose to keep that swab out of yours. That's KPIX-TV's Itai Hod. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, AI and Diversity. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, where every week we discuss issues including gender. This time we're talking about artificial intelligence and diversity. There's been drama over Levi's recent announcement that it would use AI-generated models with more diverse skin tones and body types rather than simply hiring models of color, critics called foul. It is not the first time AI has been called out for possible discrimination against everyone from seniors to the disabled to those with gaps in their employment history. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission says some 83% of employers use some sort of automated tool as part of their hiring process, ranging from screening a person's facial expressions to skipping people with small social media profiles because there isn't enough data to create one. The issue goes far beyond creating computer-generated models that look like real people of color. We reached out to Kika Ojo-Thompson, founder and CEO of the Kojo Institute, an equity consultancy, to ask why so many were angry over the choice Levi's made. It's kind of like skipping the real work, right? The the issue that is now decades old is that non-white models have been left out of the industry in many ways. Um, They have long been articulating um, the fact that they have not been hired, have not been selected uh, over decades. Um, So, and and that the issue is, you know, an issue of equity, an issue of, you know, racial justice inside of their industry. And so the work to be done inside of, in um, um, fashion industry, uh, a fashion company like Levi's is around, you know, who gets selected? How do we select? What is our thinking around beauty standards? um, And then how does that result in the outcomes that we've seen, which is that non-white models are not being hired? 
And so by, by doing this, um, they've skipped that work and, you know, um, made it look like there was representation when that work had not been done. And the models that are actually still here and need to be hired have still not been tapped and hired. I need to say here that Levi has said they're not scaling back their plans for live photo shoots or working with diverse models. They say that this partnership, which was with a company, a black owned AI company, by the way, allows it to create a more inclusive and sustainable shopping experience. But this issue, I suspect, goes beyond companies like Levi's, right? We're not just talking models here. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, it certainly has the potential to um, be the sort of the path chosen by a multitude of of sectors and, and, and industries. And, you know, this is obviously worrisome, again, because it doesn't attend to the actual equity, you know, EDI work that um, that that companies are being called to do, where. When we're, when we're not seeing the representation, there's a larger reason. Representation is a symptom of a larger problem, you know, going on around who is considered ideal, who is considered professional, you know. Um, and so when we when we see the outcome of, you know, lack of representation, this is really because of a set of processes that are happening inside that need to be attended to. It's interesting that you say that because... Earlier this year, the EEOC testified on Capitol Hill, I believe, and said something like 99% of Fortune 500 companies use artificial intelligence as part of their hiring process. So does that mean that a bunch of companies out there are using a system that could perpetuate bias, not deal with people with speech impediments, not deal with people that look a certain way, not deal with people that have gaps in their history because they say it took time off to have a baby or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this goes back to the, to the, the first thing we need to interrogate, which is that, you know, there are people are not neutral in their thinking and neither are spaces. And so AI was created by people. And as long as we understand that people are holding, um, you know, biases that are really constructions that are integrated into all of our systems, our education system, our media, our, you know, um, health care, child welfare, all of these systems um, are are representative of those um, original legacy ideas. So ideas around racialized people, Black people, Indigenous people, people of color, ideas around people with disabilities, people who are queer, etc. Those ideas are actually interwoven into our systems. And so it is those people who are interacting with those systems that then create AI. So we should not be surprised that that AI as products or outputs of that then, um, you know, re- reflect those problematic ideas. And so we're treating AI as a big solution. Like, you know, we'll, we'll handle this. We'll just get AI to, you know, assess um, uh, potential uh, clients or potential staff, et cetera. But it is not in itself an answer. And we have to attend to the issues of oppression and, um, you know, the impact of legacies of transatlantic slave trade and colonialism, et cetera, before we can presume that AI will be safe for us. So we can't presume that. I wonder what you think. I know that there have been places using AI and there have been problems with it, even recognizing black people and Asian people and Latina people, right? 
I, I'm misidentifying them as opposed to white people. How, how big of a problem do you think that is? It's a huge problem. And again, right, we we can't, you know, the, it's the larger or sort of the background context to this is this idea of the universal person, universal human, the ideal human. And, you know, they are eugenicist ideas. They are they are deeply, you know, racist ideas that go back to the origins of race as a social construction is that who is the ideal human? And so if we don't trouble that idea first and then we have, you know, um, uh, AI sort of replicating those ideas, of course, we're going to see these outcomes, right? We're using a prototype of, of an ideal person, a universal slash ideal person. And, and we're seeing the trouble. We're seeing, you know, people being, you know, um, sought after, presumed to be a, 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 a perpetrator of a crime because AI said so, or, you know, AI suggested that that was the case. Um, we have to go back to the reality that, that people created AI and, and those people hold, you know, the, the data is clear that those people hold biases that are quite dangerous. What can companies do to actually hire diverse people as opposed to creating with a, creating them with a computer model? Well, first, we have to get real about what's going on. So we have to be informed by our data. And when I say data, I mean qualitative as well. So when we look around and we see that there are whole groups missing from our spaces and our and our industries, we have to trouble that. Um, and presuming that they just don't want to be there or there's some kind of drought uh, for those types of people is um is has been has been well debunked so we really need to go further and when we do that then we need to start to look at our processes even the processes we've been using for decades presuming that they're just fine because well we got through in those um we need to trouble those and and look at the ways that those are producing the same outcomes over and over again and be courageous enough to try something new um and we need to listen to the people who are most impacted by the way we've been doing business so the people that are left out the people who are not there we need to access those groups listen to them and be deferential to what they have to say about the ways that our practices have been historically exclusionary and then make adjustments. That was Kika Ojo Thompson at the Kojo Institute, which specializes in DEI. Hear an extended look at the issue on the CBS News Roundup podcast. Coming up, some cool tunes. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this, all of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keys. People are all about Major League Baseball this time of year, weeks after opening day, but... If you have a vintage glove, you might want to take a trip to Minneapolis for much more than heading to the stadium. There's a little shop there that's one of the only ones of its kind in the entire nation. They picked up some pitchers, 
They got good fielders. They got great hitters. We are one of the few states in the entire country that gets excited for baseball while there's still snow on the ground. 34, I think, one opening day, and yeah, I had everything I owned on. Got an old Wilson here in my hands, right? A2000. That was top of the line back in the day. No matter what the temperature reads, every day feels like opening day to Jimmy Linetti. He's the owner of DNJ Glove Repair, and you won't find many people who do what he does. One of the first things they say is like, oh, I got a glove in my garage I should get to you. It all started when Jimmy began relacing t-ball gloves and realized he had a knack for it. So like a carpenter takes to wood, he took to leather, working on mitts in his garage and basement. As word got out, Jimmy decided he needed more room. Last fall, he moved his shop to South Minneapolis, where his store doubles as a mini museum. I really am a fan of the, uh, the Met Stadium era of the Twins. Could watch a Twins game and then watch people pick potatoes right next door. Yeah, yeah, you could. He also restores gloves from that era. Basically, if you can catch with it, he'll fix it. The yeah. fingers are individual. How yeah. old is this? That probably dates to the 40s, fit, you know, maybe into the 50s. Can you imagine if they use these kind of gloves nowadays? They used to just shove them in their back pocket. Yeah. Jimmy will work on leather of all kinds with webbing of all kinds, fixing them up for kids of all ages. He even repaired a glove for musician and Minnesota native Martin Zeller. It's a nice Rod Carew, so that's, uh, that's why I'm fixing it up. When it comes to relacing, it takes him anywhere from 45 to 75 minutes to bring a vintage glove back to life. That lace starts at the pinky, and then go, it'll end at the thumb. Do this Reggie Jackson glove. Fixing leather is in his blood. His grandpa was a shoe repairman who came to Minnesota from Italy. Jimmy even uses some of the same glue his grandpa used. He's been a big inspiration for me to do this. The gloves he works on span generations, and just like the thrill of opening day, there's a thrill in giving an old mitt another season. I get a note from a lady said like, yeah, my father opened up his glove and like, he didn't take it off all day. That's the most satisfying part of the job. That's WCCO-TV's John Lauritsen. In a Northwest Baltimore community, a symbol meant to racially divide a white neighborhood from an historically black university comes tumbling down after more than 80 years. The rebuke of a racist past. This wall occupies a central part um, of the history of Morgan State University. Um, Morgan moved to this site uh, in 1917, and this whole community was all white. And those white neighbors were furious about a Negro college moving into their neighborhood. They fought tooth and nail with then Morgan State College, even taking a lawsuit to Maryland's highest court in October of 1918, but to no avail. News headlines from the late 1930s show the planning and construction of a wall that would divide this community for generations. It became known as the, the hate wall, the spite wall, because the neighbors were erecting this wall to prevent Morgan students from literally walking across the street into their neighborhoods and into the shopping center. It's, it's really overwhelming, to, to be honest. <laughs> This not only affected Morgan students, but maybe more deeply some of the current residents who have lived in this community for decades, who are overjoyed at the chance to feel included. We are very excited. Um, I've been here for 16 years, but I've heard plenty residents who have talked about this wall being very restrictive, being very not inclusive of the community. 
And this is where Morgan State has been intentional about including residents of all the new development happening for the university. We have academic facilities here. You know, we have um, a bookstore here. We have thriving shops. We have redeveloped the shopping center. And then we're taking down the last remnant. More importantly, all of this is being done in partnership with their neighbors, always asking for their input. Paint colors to the size of buildings, and that, that matters. Again, it's inclusion that matters. So we're appreciative of that forever partnership because Morgan State is a part of our community. Hate never, ever wins. And Morgan State University is coming face to face with that. And we are preserving a certain part of that because we want to always be able to tell our story. That's WJZ's Stefan Dingle. Finally, some great music gets its due at long last in the Library of Congress. For example, Chicago blues legend Coco Taylor, who wails the heck out of this 1967 version of Wang Dang Doodle. CBS's Deborah Rodriguez takes us on an audio journey. Country road. Music runs the gamut from John Denver's 1971 hit to Madonna's 1980s album. There's Queen Latifah's 1989 debut LP. Daddy Yankee's 2004 hit gets credit for the explosion of reggaeton. And how can you argue this song from Mariah Carey just won't stop? Oldies but goodies cited for defining the sounds of the nation's history and culture. Imagine there's no heaven. John Lennon's Imagine and Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. There's a lady who sure all it glitters is gold. Speaking of oldies, let's dial it all the way back to 1907. The earliest item added to the registry is the very first mariachi recordings by a group from the rural state of Jalisco, Mexico. And the Super Mario Brothers have been designated an unlikely national treasure. Koji Kondo's 1985 theme is the first music from a video game to receive the honor. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Weekend Roundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. The Weekend Roundup is produced at the CBS News Washington Bureau. Sarah Fishman is the technical supervisor, and Alan Peng provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. 
Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. For more deep dive and daily business content, listen to Wondery, the destination for business podcasts. With shows like How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more, Wondery means business. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.